Welcome to Radio Cachimbona. I'm Yvette, and this is a special segment called The Lit Review. Radio Cachimbona is a podcast hosted by one Salvatorian, that's a Salvadoran tourist, growing, healing, and storytelling in Southern Arizona. I'm here to storytell the fierce, ongoing resistance occurring in these borderlands and centering Central American voices. Today, I'm really excited to have Alex from episode two, Nino's daughter. She's a Latina scholar who studies the relationship between having an incarcerated parent and adolescent development among girls of color. So uh, thank you all to the patrons for supporting this. I thank you so much for that. I hope you enjoy. So hi everyone. I'm here with Alex. Do you want to say hi? Hi. And I really quickly wanted to introduce the concept of lit reviews. This is like a new special segment that I'm starting and I'll be bringing on women of color guests for kind of like book club chats, which is, uh, but we're going to have them over wine, which is why I'm calling it the lit review. Yes. (laughs) And we'll be bringing you wrong critical analysis of your favorite authors and texts. And this week I'm honored to have Alex again from episode two. Here to chat about two pieces that stood out to us. An Open Letter to Mary Daly, which was written by Audre Lorde, and Speaking in Tongues by Gloria Anzaldúa. And both of these are in the anthology This Bridge Called My Back, which was edited by Sri Moraga and Gloria Anzaldúa. So before kind of diving into analyzing them, I wanted to ask you why these two pieces stood out to you. That's a good question. For sure, the Gloria Anzaldúa piece spoke out to me because... I read it about a week ago. I wasn't really writing, but it did speak to me. And I sort of put a mental note on that chapter of how I need to go back to it when I am writing mm-hmm. and when I'm having trouble writing because mm-hmm. it it definitely empowered me that I am a writer. And also during brunch, we had talked about writing mm-hmm. and we talked about ourselves as writers. Mm-hmm. And I remember the conversation being like, oh, well... I, writing's hard or I'm not a writer and this piece immediately came to mind because it just reinforces the fact that we are writers Mm -hmm. despite what we're told yeah and then the Audre Lorde piece spoke to me because when I read it about a year ago I've I've had a different reaction to it now reading it a year ago versus now I have some thoughts about that I feel like when I read it the first time it was more like Oh, like she collected Mary Daly. Like she <laughs> gathered her. And then I can see now where I'm reading it. And I'm like, wow, that must have been exhausting for her to write that. And just yeah. really thinking about how I witnessed so many people have to write these open letters, these open emails. Mm-hmm. And just like the maybe the behind the scenes that we don't think about. I guess I just, I'm, I'm looking at it from that perspective. Yeah. Yeah. What about you? I think also, some, well, we, I think the reason why I was attracted to the Audre Lorde piece, we talked about over brunch. Or no, the Gloria Anzaldúa piece, we talked about yes. over brunch. I just remember that I shared how I'm hesitant to give myself that identifier of writer. Yes. And Denise, our friend, was like, don't don't let institutions tell you that you're a writer or you're right. not. You do write all the time for your podcast, which mm-hmm. is true. Yeah. <laughs> and so why would you say that you're not a writer just because like, oh, you didn't major in creative writing in undergrad or because you didn't do an MFA or because like exactly. you haven't published in mm-hmm. a law review. Right. 
So, and I think it's really radical that she addresses women of color as writers, like all women of color as writers. So that's why I liked that piece. And then the open letter to Mary Daly, I just, I always appreciate the labor that goes into open letters calling people out. Mm. And so, and I've also been thinking a lot about cancel culture. Like I posted something today about, no, we're not canceling people because everybody's flawed and bound to make mistakes. Yeah. Uh, So I just kind of wanted to see an example, like just think about an example of, of a call out letter, call in letter, depending on how, whatever you think it is. Right. I mean, in a way, I feel like also her letter was a, it was a call in and then a call out. So that, I feel like even the nuances of call out culture was, was talked about or written about in her letter. I know. Yeah. And did you read the backstory behind the open letter? Because so at first, like during her lifetime, Audre Lorde said that the reason she published the open letter is that Mary Daly never responded to her letter and so she's like okay well i'll make it public and that made sense to me because it's like she's expended so much labor you know might as well make it a teaching moment for other people if mary daly didn't want to listen but then i read something else that said that um in her papers they found mary daly's response oh really? <laughs> yeah it's like wow this is really complex <laughs> that is complex i wonder if it was a response like before the letter of public yeah or... yeah and i didn't get i didn't really research right. the nitty-gritty i just know that like there's two sides to the story mm-hmm. <laughs> okay which one do you want to discuss first do you want to choose I don't have a preference. I'm going to do speaking in tongues. Okay. The first thing that stood out to me was her, the greeting that she has in the letter. Right. Dear Mujeres de, col- de Color. <laughs> Mujeres de Color. I was about to say that. <laughs> Mujeres de Color Companions in Writing. I thought that was so powerful because I was just saying she assumes that all women of color are inherently writers. And yes. that's not something that has ever been assumed in my life. And I, I remember when I was an undergrad, I took this writing course from this writing professor that was really respected on campus. Okay. And I took it because I really wanted to impress him. And when actually, when I was 18, I wanted to be a writer. That's like what I, that's the profession that I envisioned myself. Yeah, being. you were saying that at Brent. Yeah. <laughs> and so I was like really into this class. And at our final meeting, we were discussing my final paper, and he goes, well, you know, from one writer to another. And then he was, like, giving me advice, and I don't even remember what advice he gave me, because I remember just, like, being so happy, just so joyful that he recognized me like that. And I think that's because, like, no one really had prior to that. And I just, women of color don't grow up being encouraged to picture themselves as writers or to, you know, uh, to be recognized as such. And so I think it was so radical for her to say that actually, like, all women of color are inherently writers. And I, f- I, I think that this is why Mel and Mays and Nair are so important right. because, yeah, like, I never grew up thinking of myself as a professor. And it was because of that program that I could actually envision myself as, like, a thought leader. Yeah, I, it made me think of just intention, intentionality. It almost feels like that introduction could be in like a form of a, a, write, a writing circle or a writing group. Mm-hmm. And so I've actually, I've actually been part of a women of color writing group oh, with nice. um, Dr. Hernandez Home mm-hmm. at the Writing Skills Improvement Program on campus. And this was three years ago where she put out a call for graduate students who identified as women and who were women of color. And apparently she got so many responses, she couldn't even create that many groups. Mm -hmm. Um, But 
Like she couldn't facilitate yeah, that many. Yeah, she couldn't facilitate. There's so many. I, I just, I think it spoke to the need of how we as women of color, I mean, yes, in the context of academia, but we really want to write mm-hmm. and we really want to be a part of a community that affirms us as writers. Yeah. And so in the past three years, I think a big part of our writing group has been affirming each other yeah. and then just cultivating our ideas around writing um, and just supporting each other in the writing journey. I think a lot of times when we meet, I think half an hour is spent just like updating each other about the barriers to writing or someone telling us that, you know, we need to learn to write in this way. Mm-hmm. And what our group does and what that community essentially does for us is just reinforce the fact that we are writers. Yeah, I think I love that. (laughs) We should do a writing group. Yeah, I know. I know we should, especially because also Denise, I think already leads one. Oh, really? Yeah, she calls it Writing Mondays. So we should just go and like, cause it's, it is also like an accountability group. Um, Which I need. Yeah, (laughs) which I need too. And that's what, right? Gloria says, she goes, we would rather do laundry, we'd rather take out the trash, do anything but writing. So I think accountability for our writing is important. Yeah. I felt so validated when she wrote about how she, like, does all these crazy things to procrastinate. I was like, okay, good. I'm not the only one. (laughs) I just appreciate, you know, because sometimes, like, there's this romanticized idea of who a writer is, and they're sitting at, like, a mahogany desk, and, like... (laughs) They're an old white man with a bourbon. <laughs> and it's nice to know that, like, it's just regular women who have laundry, who have to clean their house, mm-hmm. who have all this other shit to do, who also want to write. I actually also, I was struck by how she instructed women to write wherever they could and how she right. says that, like, she she writes on the toilet. Yeah. <laughs> and she recommended that people write whenever, you know, if, if it's, like, while you're waiting for your laundry to be finished, if, like, you know, before you go to sleep, you're just, like, writing some things down on a napkin, but just to always write. And I don't know, I think... I felt kind of weird about that because I feel like it goes against what most people assume and which I think is also like really true that it's hard for poor folks to be able to write to devote time to reading and writing uh, because of you know people have to work multiple jobs people have to take care of their kids people have to clean their house you know it's like it's just really hard to live under capitalism and also have time to develop hobbies but she was kind of claiming that like you could and so I don't know how you felt about that if Because I think sometimes the let's just struggle through it mantra can be debilitating because it doesn't take into account the structural things that make it hard for people. There are limits to how much, you know, individual oomph can really get you, you know, past these structural issues. But I mean, the writing process, I wonder what it is for you, but I go back and forth between writing as setting it up where I'm like, I'm going to buy myself a coffee and Mm -hmm. like a treat. And I'm going to sit here and and write versus other times where it's just like, I'm going to wake up in the morning and I'm going to sit at my desk and something needs to be produced. So I've just tried different ways. Right. What about you? Mm, I think I'm the same way. And like, I actually think why academia is such an ideal path for people who want to write because you have that time. Because like for me, I don't know, it's like, inspiration doesn't come whenever I want it to you know like when I sit down and I like I can force myself to write but like that doesn't mean it's going to be usable you know and and I guess it also just depends on like what kind of writing you're doing you know like how much research is required Mm 
but even if not that much research is required, like in my experience, I have to devote a lot, a lot of time and a lot of drafts before I'm like really proud of something and before I want to share it. And maybe that's me internalizing like the the stuff that I've been told about what makes something readable. Exactly. Is that it? Oh, that's sad. <laughs> I mean, I see that a lot and with my friends who identify as uh, a woman. Especially because women like, are perfectionists because we're held to a different standard so the way we've adapted is to be perfectionists and like i know that in the sciences i forget who told me, a professor in the sciences told me this that like she was really she would get really sad because she would see men in her science classes getting c's and being like yeah fuck yeah like i'm, I'm doing this i'm doing it and then like women would get b's and would be like oh my god i'm not getting an a like i don't i shouldn't be here <laughs> I can see that. Yeah, and I think that the same kind of thing happens with me with writing. I don't like doing it if I don't feel like I'm going to be able to make it perfect. And if I'm not able to devote as much time to editing it as I would like, then I don't want to do it. But is the alternative really better of like just not writing at all? No, that alternative is not. It's <laughs> yeah. not okay. Yeah, and and she says that I think I think she says. Oh, that she is scared to write, but that she's more scared of what will happen if she doesn't write. That's powerful. Yeah, yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. That makes me think of also how she talked about those of those of us, those women who write, but in a way that betrays sort of the existence yes. of women of color. And I thought about that because yes. the way you mentioned academia, there is a certain way that majority academia wants you to write Mm -hmm. and wants you to write like neutral um, I guess without emotion Mm -hmm. and so people who resist that in academia sometimes call it like well I do subversive scholarship so within their writing they they write like academia wants them to write but in this very subversive way that gets to their their truth Mm -hmm. but sometimes I wonder do I teeter the line of complicity and writing the way academia wants me to write versus the way I want to write and I know I should write for myself and for my community? Mm-hmm. And how do we know whether we're being sellouts? Yeah, that's what I thought about. <laughs> I, I really appreciated that portion of the letter. I think that she said, uh, I can write this and yet I realize that many of us women of color who have strong degrees credentials and published books around our necks like pearls that we hang on to for dear life are in danger of contributing to the invisibility of our sisters writers and i yeah i mean i was i think i was really struck by this because i think even though i try to not be elitist and even though like i understand that luck was what got me to play you know luck and my hard work i'm not going to discount that but like but it is luck in a lot of ways because i was exposed to programs in middle school that made me prepare to go to a private high school like when i was in high school i had mentorship programs you know i just had things that other people don't have and so i try not to use my degrees as a type of self-worth but also but I know that in a world that really underestimates me and dismisses me all the time, I do cling on to that as validation. And I thought that because of that, I am complicit in the way that Gloria Zeldu is calling this out. And I thought, also thought about that I heard Sheree Moraga on NPR, and she was talking about how she survived Stanford because she, I think she still is, she's a theater and arts professor at Stanford. Oh, really? And yeah, and so when she was first 
tenured there. She she went through this like really difficult first year, and because when she had her one year evaluation, her department supervisor was like, "So you know we've noticed that the kids that take your classes only, seem to only take ethnic studies classes." So we just wanted you to ask them if they could like diversify their course load a little bit more because we don't think it's good that they're only taking ethnic studies classes. Basically just implying you can't have a well-rounded education if you major in ethnic studies and mostly take ethnic studies classes. Wow. Which was a huge slap in the face to her. And she said that she didn't do what they told her to do, that she didn't talk to her students, and that she kept doing the curriculum the way that she wanted to. And she said that the way that you can navigate an institution like that and not become a sellout is to not grow so attached to it that you can leave it whenever it stops working for you and what you want to do. And so she was like, that's why I didn't take his, you know, take what he wanted me to do and execute it because that wasn't going to work for me. And that wasn't going to work for the teaching program that I wanted to have. And if that's what Stanford was going to require, then I was just going to leave. Wow. Yeah. And that, like, really inspired me to I was still at law school at the time and so that really inspired me to figure out how to navigate that place and make it work for me and know that if like I couldn't be an abolitionist and graduate from there then I was gonna leave because I it wasn't like the Stanford degree wasn't worth changing my values Hmm. I feel like it's really hard I don't think we talk about and maybe I don't know if it's important or not but what do we do when we receive those messages that our writing isn't up to par to like a certain stand, someone's standards or, or that we don't know how to write? And one of the things I talked about was just like, even within this letter, is this like one small act of resistance to that where we need to like unrelentlessly be part of communities that tell us otherwise? Mm-hmm. Um, yes. So sometimes for me, that's just like telling friends, no, you are a writer, mm-hmm. but maybe that person is shitting on your writing. Okay, yes, they have a few more years on you, but you do know how to write. Yeah. And I mean, I can't measure if they get the message, but I guess for me personally, I do need people in my life telling me that I'm a writer and what I have to say is important. And the way I say it is, is perfectly fine. Mm-hmm. That's the kind of support that I need yeah. in my writing. What about you? What kind of like how how can you be supported in your writing? Definitely validation. Yeah. Like, and I think that the Radio Cachimbona community gives that to me a lot, and I really appreciate it for that. Because <laughs> I I remember um, I was writing a final paper that was researching the origin of the law school model, and it turns out that the origin of the law school model was a plan to keep out Jews, Catholics, and freed slaves from the legal profession. Because previously they had an apprenticeship style where, like, if you just you just had to convince a lawyer to take you on as their apprentice. Really, wow. And then through, I guess, once you had been trained to a certain extent, you could just become a lawyer. And so that what that meant was that you didn't need to be super rich to become a lawyer. You just needed to have a sympathetic dude who's willing to take you under his wing. And I say he because it was mostly male profession at the time. It sounds like a movie. Like, have I watched that before? Hmm. Oh, mm, no. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> like, oh, a lawyer, old white man taking me under his wing. Like... <laughs> you know, I'm surprised that hasn't been... I feel like that would be like a cool movie. Like, 
before Harvard Law. Yeah. Because Harvard Law, then Harvard Law was, like, literally established for that reason. And the first year, yeah, and, like, the tuition requirement and, like, the first year curriculum, which is very, very reading and writing intensive, was created really just to block people out. Oh, yeah. So then I, so I was writing this final paper about that, and I was, I was sharing about it on, I think it was still said about us at the time. Mm -hmm. And then people like a ton of people dm me like oh my god i would love to read it please send it to me and i was like whoa that was not the response that i was thinking i would get i was just you know sharing because i was talking shit no they wanted you <laughs> to publish it they wanted you to publish it yeah right and like i know and it's interesting because like i, I think at least like 30 people were in the dms being like can i read this and yeah i should have tried to publish it you know, and I still can. I still can. Yeah, I was just I think I, I think it was like the end of three L year or something like that. And I was like, okay, I need to graduate and study for the bar. No, you really can because people who do their dissertation graduate and then publish their dissertation. Yeah. So just FYI, that was not a dissertation. It was like a little mini. Oh, no, no. See, <laughs> that goes back to writing. <laughs> it's still writing. Oh my god, academia really is in my fucking head. Like, it's not a dissertation. It's like, who cares? Like. I, you know, people, like, are more likely to read a short article than a whole dissertation, mm-hmm. unfortunately. But you know what? Like, even when I have written the way, like, academia wants me to write, and I literally write about children of incarcerated parents, and I am one of those children. Yeah. When I try to write without emotion, when I try to write being neutral, mm-hmm. I have been told in the edits, literally, wow, this is so good. Did you write this? And, like, another comment wow, like, this is different from everything else you've written. Did you write this? And I'm like, do you not believe that I, as a brown woman, can write Mm -hmm. well in whatever standard you are telling me that means? But it felt like I was being freaking interrogated for good writing. So in a lot of ways, it's like, well, damn, I'm damned if I do and I'm damned if I don't. So I might as write or at least try to write in the way that feels true to who I am and I have talked about this before but even in when I wrote my comps I'm like I'm going to call it the punishment system I'm not going to mm-hmm. call it the criminal justice system and if I do I'm gonna put a little parentheses that says criminal in parentheses in I n justice system mm-hmm. because it's like I can't win if I write the way they want me to and I can't if I don't write the way they want me to so just gonna do do it how I want it yeah yeah I, your your story reminded me of something I because I wrote this anecdote in the Google Doc. I don't know. Well, whatever. <laughs> I'll bring up the open letter to Mary Daly right now. So, but there's connections to that. No, yeah, exactly. So, she writes. Audrey Lord writes in the open letter to Mary Daly. As women identified women, we cannot afford to repeat these same old destructive, wasteful errors of recognition. And I think that your advisor, whoever was edit or whoever was editing your yeah. stuff, mm-hmm. being like, "Wow, like this is so good. It's so different from what you usually write. Like, do you write this? It's just an error of recognition. It's because from it's exactly like you said. You can't win because you're trying to have a neutral, distanced tone, and so you end up distorting your writing." Right. into what they what you think they want and what they tell you that they want and then when you write in an authentic way and obviously it's going to be more powerful when it's authentic when it's powerful they don't believe that you wrote it i i think there's connections to an open letter to mary daly because i made the executive decision to write back an email like write a, a well it was closed email and say 
you know, reading your edits. <laughs> Still though. I, it made it sound like you may think that I'm plagiarizing and I just want to let you know that this is all of my own writing. Yeah. And that person replied back like, oh, I didn't mean it that way and this and that. But I think it connects to the open letter to Mary Daly because I had to sit there for an hour and construct this email that was five sentences to say that, nah, you're not going to tell me or in implicitly excuse me of plagiarizing like this is my own work because mm-hmm. yeah. also in that same letter she talks about how you don't really know how many hours we spend thinking about racism so it's like your professor will never know that you spent an hour of your time trying to figure out how you could defend yourself right. while also remaining quote-unquote respectable right that's you don't you will never know what kind of emotion that takes what kind of mental labor that takes I mean, it's like, how do you invoice that? Like, how do I, no, like, how do I, I should be actually able to count it as a research hour, like, which I get paid for. Mm -hmm. So I should be able to count that as actual labor. I spent an hour writing this when I could have been using that hour to do something else. Yeah. No, right. You're responding to her edits on your work. So like, it was research time. It was research time. (laughs) But yeah, your story reminded me of a time in law school when we had to do peer evaluations in civil procedure. And we had to, we were, I forget exactly what the exercise was, but we were like divided up and we had to make, or I think we had to like make spontaneous oral arguments maybe. And someone's feedback, this white woman's feedback was, oh, you didn't make argument X. And I had literally made that argument during my speech. In plain sight. Yeah. And it was like, it was also, damn dude, it was literally your job to evaluate us. Like all you had to do was watch us. So, like, if somebody whose job it was to watch and recognize couldn't recognize, like, how am I ever going to be recognized for the work that I do when I'm at a nonprofit right. or a law firm? And this, and I felt invisible and it made me feel defeated because I just realized, like, this is how bias becomes structural because this white woman with power is going to, you know, who could end up in a leadership position in the future doesn't see Latino women and the work that they do. And it just. It made me fe- it made me feel defeated because it made me ask myself, okay, like I know I have to be twice as good to be recognized, mm-hmm. but like what happens when you are twice as good and they still don't recognize mm-hmm. you? Yeah, it's like you have to unlearn all of that that was placed upon you because we carry that. Mm-hmm. And I think yeah, and like going back to the so another quote that I liked was I have not yet unlearned the esoteric bullshit and pseudo intellectualizing that school brainwashed into my writing like it's another thing that I need to unlearn and she also writes that like it's seen as a success if you can achieve distance in order to win the coveted title literary writer or professional writer which is what we've been saying an institution validates you that's how you become a professional writer and she says above all do not be simple direct nor immediate and this reminded me of a time where one of my professors, Kathleen Cleaver, who's like really dope. I know. Really? Yeah. I have to look, t- look her up. Yeah. She would criticize my writing be- and I loved her for it because she was the only person who was really telling me like, you're not writing for an audience that isn't college educated or that isn't law school educated. She was like, what are you? She would just like read my writing and be like, what are you really trying to say here? You know, it's like using all the using all of these big words like capitalism and neoliberalism and whatever, whatever, whatever. And she's just like, you're using these words, but what do they really mean? 
And I needed that. I need that right now. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, because I was, yeah, I, I don't know. I was just taught that writing is valuable when you're able to quote all the relevant theorists and when you're able to use all the correct buzzwords. What about the application of our writing? What do you mean? Like, it's because that is a lot of it. It's like, can you write about theory and can you write it well? And okay, sure. But then how do we apply our writing? If we can't apply our writing, then, you know, what's its use? Which I think Gloria Anzaldua talks about. We need to write for our communities. Mm -hmm. Yeah, she talked about how writing is wasted if it's just kept in the ivory tower. Yeah. Which I think is really true and really powerful. So I want to talk to you about this idea because you are also short or whatever. Everyone else is overly tall. (laughs) (laughs) But the phrase we speak in tongues like the outcast and the insane got to me because being invisibilized can make you feel this way. And this is part of the reason why I think it's political when like small statured women refuse to yell to be heard. So for Sidabronas, we interviewed a law professor who was super soft-spoken and we actually kept telling her to speak more loudly so that our like amateur mics could, <laughs> could catch everything she was saying. And she was like, no, this is the volume at which I'm going to speak. And oh. I, I was like, Okay. <laughs> I was I was so like shooketh by her. But it was so profound because she had also been sharing about dialogue circles, which is something it's a practice that's rooted in indigenous knowledge. And she shared that listening can be passive or it can be active. Mm. And if we're gonna have an egalitarian circle where we're all listening to each other, what that means is that sometimes you're gonna need to make a more active effort to listen to somebody if they're more soft-spoken. It's not just on them to make themselves heard. Also, the people listening need to do everything they can to make themselves good listeners. Wow. Yeah. That reminds me of all the places, conferences, where people will say, like, can you speak up or we can't hear you back here. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I guess that is complicated because also there are, like, audio concerns you want to you do want to make sure that people who are hard of hearing can hear everything that you want to say but i think it's still something it's an idea still worth holding on to because i just appreciated that as a small woman she was like i'm not going to change myself Mm. in order to convince you that i'm someone who needs to be heard i'm just going to share my thoughts and it's up to you if you recognize that you should be listening to me I mean, have you ever felt like you needed to speak louder because you are short? Oh, definitely. Okay. Yeah, for sure. And have you tried that? Like, did you try then to be like, okay, I'm going to speak a few more octaves? Yeah, I mean, I think, yeah, I think because I frequently put on events, I've had to learn how to use my projection voice. So I think like things like that have really just like in a concrete way forced me to learn how to yell. I don't know. I think it's people react differently to our bodies. This this is bringing me back to the Audrey Lord piece too, because I think she talks about how 
Mary Daly's problematic because she can only imagine one way of relating between white women and women of color. Right. And I feel like people have different ways of relating to based on what your body looks like. Mm -hmm. So I think if a white male comes to the front of a room, people are automatically think that he's commanding presence, that he's commanding authority. Whereas like when I go to the front of the room, people just keep on fucking talking. They're not, they don't assume like the host is here. Mm -hmm. The person leading this event is here. Mm -hmm. And so that's, why I've just kind of I had to force myself to be like hello the event is starting (laughs) I just had to force myself to do it yeah I think with I mean with adults and young people but with young people I'm sure and I'm also like I look really young so let me try to yell you know in a camp setting like all right everyone like this is what we're gonna do and yeah I don't I think that's profound because Oftentimes, I think, like, how do we make ourselves bigger? Mm-hmm. Right. Okay, maybe through our voice, if we talk loud enough, mm-hmm. we can make ourselves seem bigger. Mm-hmm. But that's probably not... It's probably not going to, like, have the results that we think. Like, maybe I think it's not it going to work out. It can. I think it can, but, like, I think what I appreciated about Christine Zuni... Oh, I forgot her last name. But what I really appreciated about professor, that professor was that... She was like, I'm not going to change for you because I don't need to. Mm. Because I have things to say and they're worth listening to regardless of whether or not I'm loud. Right. You know, it's like, I think you can, but it's just kind of a question of these things that we lose Mm -hmm. to survive in academia. These parts of ourselves that we have to, that we feel like we have to change in order to survive. And I think the less we do that, the better, the healthier it is for us internally. Mm -hmm. And I, yeah. I appreciate that when I think about it. Naturally, I'm not, when I go into a space, I'm not loud. And when I feel like I have to be, I don't feel like that is my truth self. Mm. But I feel like I'm, I'm being forced to for whatever reason. Yeah. Whereas if I could stay soft-spoken or whatever, stay medium-spoken, yeah. that feels natural to me. Yeah. I pulled out the quote because white eyes do not want to know us just because I thought that that expressed <laughs> a similar sentiment to what Audre Lorde was talking about with Mary Daly. It's like, you don't want to see me in my full complexity and right. you only want to see me and my people as regressive and backwards and... Or as a victim. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I've definitely experienced that. It's hard to pinpoint, it's hard to explain how in social interactions it happens, but it definitely does. Oh, and I also like that she talked about how Spanish wasn't taught in grade school and Spanish wasn't required in high school because, actually, I've never talked about this in the podcast before, but the research that I did in undergrad was about bilingual education. And the research that I did for Mel and Mays was about bilingual education. And through doing that research, I learned that actually kids who are in dual language schools who let's say it was like a Spanish-English dual language school and their native language was Spanish, those kids had higher self-esteem because Spanish was a part of the curriculum and so they felt like their home life was valid in academic terms, like it was important to study. And that makes so much sense when you think about it. To me, it's kind of funny we needed a study to do that because it makes so much sense. Like, of course, Spanish isn't seen as academic, so your place isn't in academia. Hmm. That dual language, I mean, with even language and writing, sometimes it does feel like it's 
the powers that be who are making the rules of what is acceptable and what is not because in different fields if you have the abilities to speak more than one language like that's seen as really found mm-hmm. and like such a skill mm-hmm. but in other fields if you're publishing a paper and you use words that are in a different language other than english your reviewer of your paper might send you back feedback about taking out those words yeah so no yes i thought about this at yale because my very white very wealthy roommate from literally from greenwich connecticut spoke spanish with an ecuadorian accent and it's because her grandfather was like an ecuadorian diplomat or something like that yeah and i just remember that making me realize how context is really important when we're talking about how language is valued because my spanish working class salvadorian spanish it's not thought of as academic it's not thought of as cultured but this white woman with power having connections to this ecuadorian diplomat her knowing spanish was a sophisticated and cool thing and i i hated that I mean, I think there's some cool work going on where folks are resisting that notion of what counts as appropriate and inappropriate. And so I know people are calling for like anthologies, for example, of women of color writers who want to write in languages other than English. So I appreciate like that work being done mm-hmm. because it's, I think you wrote about this, but it's this idea of written bias for us Mm -hmm. that needs to happen more and more i agree especially because so much information is contained in language there's uh, some ideas that can't be translated into other languages because they're like specific to that culture and i think any effort to preserve language is really really important Butler. I haven't, but I saw you wrote about her. Okay, yeah. Science fiction? Yes. I love her. I loved it. I, <laughs> I read Parable of the Sower, and it's this post-apocalyptic story. Said it, actually, she wrote it in the 90s, and she said it in 2024, which is really scary to think about now, being so close to 2024. <laughs> Four years. <laughs> but yeah, in 2024, it's like, the nation state has almost completely broken down. It doesn't really exist. There's still police, but they're privatized, so you have to pay them a really high fee for them to come do anything for you. There's like no government services. Monetary inequality is at its peak. There's a bunch of people on the street who don't have homes, and there's a small number of people who have been able to keep their homes intact, and they like live in gated communities. And yeah, so it's, and the protagonist is a black woman and I found this really powerful because so she wrote she has like a whole series of books that are kind of in that genre of like sci-fi that includes black people oh wow yeah because this is also another thing that science fiction actually can be very racist because historically it's like an all-white cast fearing invasion and it's clear to me who the invaders are and what the trope is and why there aren't any people of color imagined in this like scary future you know 
And so that's why I think Octavia Butler's work is really powerful. And as a result of her work, there was another anthology that came out called Octavia's Brood. And it's like a bunch of women of color and they most of them actually don't write science fiction it was their first time and they all wrote short short science fiction stories like and the intro said that this is radical because women of color writing themselves into the future in a yes. context where we're trying where people are trying to kill us is radical wow. and i was like what i never thought of this before this is so radical that is i mean the definition of written for us by us mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. wow so dope. I know. You should, yeah, I recommend you read her. And like, Octavia's Brood, too. I mean, I have a, a one of my, my friend, Viola, she talks about how, like, romantic novels, you don't see romantic novels where the protagonist or the main character is black, for yeah. example. And, yeah, what are the ways? And it sounds like that anthology is, like, one way to to get the work that is so needed out, out there. Mm-hmm. And in the... In speaking in tongues, Gloria Zodiusa's writing saves her from the complacency that she fears. The world she creates in her writing compensates for what the real world does not give her. And I think that's exactly what Viola was talking about. The real world doesn't have us as characters in romance novels, so what does that mean? We need to write ourselves into romance novels if that's what we want. I love that. And there's a lot of good quotes that are in that same vein. I write to record what others erase when I speak. I write to preserve myself, to make myself, to achieve self-autonomy. And that just made me think of the proverb. I think it goes something like, until the lion learns to write, every story will glorify the hunter. Right. Hmm. Like, we need to write things from our own perspective. I see here you have also to to write is to confront one's demons yeah oh god Um, that hit me yeah that does hit me i think that can play into why writing for me can be so exhausting Mm -hmm. uh, because it is interrogating oneself and really digging deep and well especially the research that you do is literally about your life well i was reading i mean we're not talking about this but la prieta which is by Gloria Anzaldúa. Yeah. And just there's just a part where she basically is like, I'm scared to write because I don't want to betray my mother, for example. But to not write about my mother in that way is like a disservice to what I what she needed to say. Oh, wow. Yeah. How was she writing about her mother? Just like sort of growing up and, and that notion of being a daughter and having brothers and how the brothers mm-hmm. were treated differently in comparison to her and and really what that did to Gloria growing up. Mm-hmm. That reminds me because um, my friend took a class from Sri Moraga when he was at Stanford and the advice that she gave to the class was find where it hurts and, <sighs> and poke it. <laughs> And that's how you that's how you write well, because that's that's what's powerful writing, right? Because it's like to hear her say, "Oh, that her brothers were favored over her." It's like that breaks my heart because I can tell you the ways in which I experienced that too, and that's why it's so critical for her to write that. Right. Yeah, I want to embody this sentiment. I think I wrote the quote down wrong because she said whatever. She just said, I'm, "I am scared of writing, but I'm more scared of not writing," right. and I want to embody that because I like especially reading about how she procrastinates I identified with that and yeah I just think I come up with every excuse to not mm-hmm. write and 
I think the only times that I have really devoted to writing have been when I've when I when it's been like an assignment for school right you know and that shouldn't be the only time that I'm motivated to write that shouldn't be the only time that I feel like oh like this it's valid to write now you know yeah I I that's so true when I write I'm like I have to clear every task on my to-do list in order to deserve that four to five hours of writing and then what ends up happening is I actually never get to that writing session because I'm going through the to-do list Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah I know so many people say that we have to write every day and I've had that thought in my mind for like two years and I bet we do write like think about how many things you've written in your head that just never made it onto paper Alex, that doesn't count. <laughs> I mean, but I mean, I just, I, there are times I'm, I can make up poems in my mind and like, even just have like a thought and I'm like, damn, that's a good thought. But then if it never makes it onto paper, that's what I'm saying. Then we're doing a disservice to ourselves. That's true. I know the idea sounds very intimidating, but you're right. We have like ideas that we would want to write down every day. And it's just about getting into the habit of that, actually. Maybe it's like journaling. Yeah. I mean, you know, notes on your phone. Can't voice memos be writing too? I feel like if I can do a voice memo in my car and then um, go home and write it out. That's true. I do see you doing voice memos. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Did you read the part where she says what validates us as human beings validates us as writers? Yeah, how did you feel about that quote? I felt like she was saying that there's no separation between writing and life, which I appreciated because I think that makes her argument stronger that it doesn't quite matter what exa- your exact situation is. Like You just need to find time and space to write wherever mm-hmm. that is, whatever that means to you. And... I think that makes a lot of sense to me because I see writers as people who are very introspective and who are just reflecting on their own experiences in life and then writing about it. And so then it makes so much sense to me that, of course, it would be our feelings and our mistakes that make us good writers, that the things that make us human are also the things that make us good writers. Hmm. And I loved her for pointing that, for bringing that out for me. I... It made me think of just like, what is it? A woman who writes has power and a woman whose power is feared, like something along that line. Mm-hmm. But more so just, I, I think about the people in my life who are who are writers, but literally have never had the chance mm-hmm. to like write down their story mm-hmm. or write down their experiences. I've been in spaces with my mom where I've seen her pick up a, a pencil and write on paper and I didn't ask what she wrote. I didn't ask to see it. I didn't tried to sneak and see what she wrote but I just knew like you know here's a writer who's just mm-hmm. never had the opportunity for whatever reason to, to write so I don't know powerful to think of the ways that you know we struggle you and I to claim that we're writers but I think of just like mm-hmm. so many other women in my life that are also writers too but haven't written it down yet yeah like who's who have never had the thought cross their mind oh I could be a writer mm-hmm. So how do you feel about her suggestion that anybody can just write? If you just have a napkin and five minutes, do you think that that's realistic? I think there have been these initiatives or something where 
you talked about it, you need to write every day. And so if you are needing to write every day and all you have is a napkin, you can, I guess, jot something down and maybe that's what you wrote for the day, but maybe the next day it turns into something more, it turns into something different. So I think it's, I think it's realistic to think that that's how it would end up being if you were going to try and write every day and also have a real life. I mean, I know that at the camp, I, you know, I was working 16 hours a day and sometimes I could only jot down three words. And by the time the next day came and I had an hour break, I literally, I could crank out a few paragraphs of just like what I'm feeling, what I'm observing. So that's, I probably should go back to that method of like every day jotting some words down and seeing what they involve. Yeah. Just getting into the rhythm of it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So the advice that Gloria and Zildua gave of writing wherever you can made me think of something that my friend Pedro told me. He told me that people were creating this app where they would text people poems while they were crossing the border. Wow. As like a way to provide them inspiration, encouragement. And I remember find, at first finding the idea offensive, considering all of the things that people are thinking about when they cross, all the dangers that they need to be vigilant of. And I just thought it was like so absurd that he would think that like people were going to be reading poems when they were crossing the border. But then reading on Zaldua, that idea has kind of redeemed itself a bit in my mind because she's saying, yes, we live in a world where there is economic inequality and where there is deprivation but that doesn't mean that people still don't want to write and that doesn't mean that people still don't want their souls fed by poems and I don't know you know I think I my opinion is irrelevant and I would need to ask directly impacted people like what they think about Mm -hmm. it but I just wanted to say that out loud and I hope that anyone listening who's undocumented can can give me some insight because I thought that was interesting that people still have that hunger even when they're fighting for food and shelter. Yeah, I, it doesn't sound so radical when you take into account like how folks crossing are being written about without their voice. How yeah. a, like how a academic society can publish a statement about folks crossing the border and it doesn't have like a hint of anyone's who's been directly impacted, like their narrative or their opinion. So, yeah, what does that look like in terms of people wanting wanting to write? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We wanted to talk now about the piece an open letter to Mary Daly. And like I shared before, the background to this is that Audre Lorde sent a critique of gin slash ecology, kind slash ecology, to Mary Daly. <laughs> you got it. I just got it right now too. Don't worry. And after she didn't receive a response, she published it. And uh, it's become a critical tool in many feminist studies classes when analyzing racism within the white feminist movement. Alex, what were your thoughts on this piece? When I read it a year ago, I think where I was at in my life was just like, hell yeah, she gathered her. She told, Audre Lorde told Mary Daly about herself. I was just in awe the way that 
Audrey Lord could just lay it down. All so in awe of how <laughs> Audrey Lord could invite Mary Daly in because she does start the letter with "I've read your work. You have seen. You have seemed like a champion for women." Yeah, and then simultaneously tell her about her blind spots in a lot of ways. But a year and a half later. <laughs> I'm reading it, I think, with different eyes, where, like, I really want to know how exhausting was this letter, how exhausted was Audre Lorde after she had to write this letter, how exhausted was she in thinking about writing this, creating it, and then publishing it, and she says explicitly how um, she, you know, she had grave reluctance to reach out to Mary Daly, because what she wanted them to chew on was neither easy nor simple. Mm -hmm. And I just thought that that spoke so much truth because I do think we talk about it often, but it always sounds new to me with thinking about how, at least in my experience, like speaking up or speaking out, it can be scary Mm -hmm. and draining and overwhelming. Especially depending on what your positionality is. You know, like as a black queer woman, as like, Latina women who are small in stature, people have different. I like to. She used the phrase, an old pattern of relating, like based on what your body looks like. People are used to treating you a certain kind of way, and the more vulnerable you are publicly, the more vulnerable it is to come out with a public call out like this. I mean, like I'm sure cancel culture probably existed back (laughs) then too, where like this letter. If you think about it, maybe maybe other women, you know. Probably, like, white feminists could have been, like, Audrey Lords over here creating a divide and a separation. Yeah. And that could have potentially affected or impacted Audrey Lord. So I looked at this piece with more nuance and of just, like, the ways that I've seen other people have to write these letters. Sometimes mm-hmm. open, sometimes close. Mm-hmm. Sometimes writing open, closed emails. And the aftermath of it, like, I wonder what was the process for Audrey Lord? Did she have to debrief with herself, with her friends? How did she process the process in and of itself? Yeah. You know, what about you? What are your thoughts? I'm sure that she must have thought that it was so critical to call her out because I... I was struck by her saying that to dismiss our black foremothers may well be to dismiss where European women learn to love. And that shook me to my core and proved to me how important this call out was. Because there is such a long history of black women taking care of white women's babies. That's what it was referring to. Thank you for clarifying that. That's what I took it as. And that's really fresh in my mind because... My mom babysits two white kids also, and she has like a very important presence in their lives. She, they think she's really fun because she takes them to the dollar store. <laughs> like, like she, they're Jewish and she taught them about Christmas. She's <laughs> like her mom. Their mom was actually really mad about it. <laughs> and she's just been there for like very important and intimate moments in their lives and in moments where you would think that a mother would be there. And I don't, I think that they have definitely come to endear... My mom has definitely like endeared herself to them. Right. And this is not a coincidence. Mm-hmm. Like, this is actually this is a part of a longer history of women of color and specifically black women being nannies and caretakers to wealthy or middle class white children right. as a way to survive. And, and in a really sad way because it takes time away from their own families and the, own, the kids that they want to care for, their own children. Right. 
And I like when she asked her, Mary, do you ever really read the work of black women? That was so direct. Like, yes. <laughs> I love the boldness of the public call out. And yeah, I just appreciated that Audre Lorde made sure that her labor wasn't wasted. It's like, you know, if Mary Daly isn't going to listen to me, I'm going to publish this openly so that maybe somebody else will. I think that's, I, I'm glad you brought out that quote because that question is still relevant today. I think the idea yeah. that did Mary did Mary read the work of black women at all or did she read the work of one black woman and I mean I guess we can't quantify how much work is enough to read but I think it speaks to like the way I've seen for example black women's work for example Kimberly Crenshaw mm-hmm. she coined the term intersectionality I've seen it co-opted in non-lingual fields where like, in family studies for example one, either they don't even cite Kimberly Crenshaw when they use the term intersectionality, or two, the field of family studies oftentimes completely gives intersectionality a whole new meaning compared to what it actually is mm-hmm. and compared to the way that Kimberly Crenshaw actually meant it to be. And so I think for Audre Lorde to ask that question, do you really read the work of black women I assume that Mary Daly's work really did such, you know, maybe you didn't. Maybe you haven't read the work of black women. Yeah, because it kind of came across, well, because she also asked, did you ever read my words or did you merely finger through them for quotations, which you thought might valuably support an already conceived idea concerning some old and distorted connection between us? Mm-hmm. So it must have come off as you like controlled F to find all, <laughs> to find like whatever words you wanted to think about. Yeah. And you didn't really read everything in its full context. And the, that quote reminded me of what postcolonial scholars want to answer of can the subaltern speak? Or can marginalized communities ever define themselves without in some way referring to the idea of Europe? Yeah, that's like the question that they're trying to answer. And I thought that that's what she meant when she was talking about some old and distorted connection between us. Because there is that pre-existing connection of colonial entities not being able to define themselves without defining themselves in relationship to this idea of Europe. They're painted as regressive and backwards and that they're always constantly trying to attain modernity as defined by Europe. And I thought that that's what, I thought that that's what the old and distorted connection between us that she was talking about was. You only want to see me in this one dimensional way and you don't want to see me in my full complexity. Especially because she was saying, you you don't want, you're writing about goddesses and you didn't write about any black goddesses. Yes. And then she also says, you know, I read that and I thought, okay, maybe Mary's focusing on like this one yeah. super specific component of like goddesses. And then she goes, but then I'm reading after reading the first three pages, it seemed that you really only wanted to talk about like black women and women of color in this context, which was like, dumb, I think aggressive entity or something like that that's why i thought it it was that's what reminded me of post-colonial studies because she pointed out that the only thing she mentioned that included black women was female genital mutilation in africa and it's like you you're just highlighting this trope to further reinforce the stereotype that black women black folks are backwards and Western, white European women are goddesses. Those are the visionaries. That's what we look to for the future. 
I feel like you brought up this piece and it really struck me. This idea when patriarchy dismisses us, it encourages our murders. Mm-hmm. Because the text had a note that in the spring of 1979, 12 black women were murdered in Boston. Where and where Mary Daly resides. Oh, okay. Yeah, because oh, it that's says, why she chose Boston. Yeah, and she goes, where you reside, yeah. Okay, wow. Yeah, and that made me think about... I forget the person's name, but did you ever know or read about that serial killer in LA who was uncaught for decades because his victims were mostly poor black women and a lot of black sex workers also? No, but I've had like the similar contacts in Canada. Okay, with, yeah, um, indigenous women actually. Okay, yeah. yeah. See, and it's true because black women are rendered disposable, and it makes murdering them an easier job because you don't have to worry about police following up as much as you would in an affluent suburb. Right. Yeah. It almost was, I guess, a call out. I felt of like, does this author Mary Daly not recognize sort of just like what's happening in like her own backyard i don't know like can you be a writer and maybe not recognize your context right yeah how can you be writing about women and goddesses when there are 12 black women murdered in your city in one summer after lord says this block makes it far easier to turn away from you completely than to attempt to understand the thinking behind your choices should the next step be war between us or separation um, assimilation within solely Western European, her, her story is not acceptable. That was, I felt like that was pretty direct of what the options were moving forward. Yeah. I thought this was a way for Audre Lorde to just like draw boundaries and say that moving forward, the way that this person writes is like non-negotiable just in like Audre Lorde's life. And so I appreciated the options that were given and then also... Although, even though I feel like the options were a little sarcastic, <laughs> what it, like are we going to be at war with each other now? Or are we just going to completely separate from each other? But I think that that spoke to how the way that Mary Daly was writing, those were like the only two options that were that were available. No, yeah, I think there's a whole history of that kind of being the only option with white women and feminism. I'm thinking about the. Right after the Civil War, when people were trying to fight for voting rights for black folks and for women, and how the split occurred when white women were pissed that the agenda was to ask for black folks, I guess it was it was black men, to ask for black men's right to vote first. And for them, it was like, we go to, we go to war, we separate. So we're just going to separate because we tried to Mm -hmm. go to war about this internally. And you all said that you were going to stick to your agenda. So we're going to leave. Right. Ended up betraying the, the abolitionists that they had worked with. So for me, Mary Daly is so boring because she is, (laughs) she is one woman in a long line of many white women that have done this. Repeatedly. Mm Mm-hmm. Is there anything you wanted to end on? I mean, I feel like you and I have talked about, I guess I have have witnessed, not witnessed, but you and, I, you and I have talked about the ways that you've had to write similar letters or email. And so I guess I just <laughs> want to know, what is the process for you afterwards? Mm-hmm. Like, what are the feelings? What are the... Yeah, mm-hmm. what, what's the protocol for when you do have to create these? You know, I feel like like my public-facing image would make you think that I'd be like, 
fuck yeah, like fuck the white supremacists. <laughs> I stand 100% behind this open letter, but I am a human and before I was a part of, when I was at school, when I was at Stanford, I was a part of this letter writing campaign to call out the Stanford Law Republicans for not not aligning with the social justice students on campus and condemning this speaker that had been invited to come. His name is Robert Spencer. I don't know. It's not the Spencer that most known in American media, but it's he's a virulent anti he's a virulent islamophobic like anti-muslim speaker and his hate speech is so intense that he's been banned from the Mm. uk from the uk wow which is like naughty (laughs) like it's not that liberal of a country it's not that leftist of a country you know and they still were like you know what like your speech is so problematic and incites violence that we're not gonna have you here and he the stanford undergrad republicans invited this person to come speak on campus and so we asked the Stanford Law Republicans to come out with a letter condemning that decision because we were like, your letter will have the most impact because of your positionality. You're kind of, you would be seen as like authority figures in this mm-hmm. context. And they refused to do it. And we thought that that was unacceptable. And so we just published an open letter shaming them, being like, we asked you to do this and you didn't. Wow. And I saw those people in class the next day. And I was scared. I was, and it's like, who are these people? They're not going to do anything to me. They're not that type to really take anything direct or in person, but I still felt really nervous. But I think ultimately it was worth doing because they deserve to be publicly shamed for not taking the right stance. And then in more recent, I don't know, and then otherwise, like, I'm I'm always nervous afterwards, but what I have perfected is the ability to have a poker face and to make it seem like I don't give a fuck. <laughs> That's a skill. It is. And I've developed it over time. And I've developed it over time. Yeah. Because I've been... Like, my personality is just kind of outspoken in these contexts. And so I've had to learn how to deal with the consequences of my of my words. And that part of that is adopting a poker face and just, I'm not scared of you. Right. That's how I've learned to deal with it. No, I think that's important to know because in a, in a lot of ways, this letter serves as a model and even Mm -hmm. knowing your protocol knowing your process serves as a model when and like when we do have to write these open letters what does it look like and and how do we support ourselves afterwards so that we're not completely drained Mm -hmm. and our wounds are just cut open you know yeah yeah i think what i would have wanted from the stanford community of social justice people who wrote that letter was more community. I think that's something that I was I found lacking at Stanford Law in general was people were so caught up in their own individual goals that they didn't make time for each other as friends. And I, I'm generalizing and I think people approach the institution differently, but I'm just saying what I saw is that I felt like people really prioritized their academics over friendship and it was really hard to make deep friendships as a result. And like, I would have wanted to feel like really like in community with people who wrote this open letter, but it, we, it wasn't. We just came together to write it and then we're like, all right, bye. And so there was no thought about the aftermath of it and how we're going to take care of ourselves and how we feel being awkward around these classmates. And I think next time I would want that intentional right. reflection afterwards. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Even if it's just informally. Right. Yeah. That would be something. Right. Because it didn't even have that. You know. <laughs> well, 
Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. This was so fun. That was really fun. This was a great first segment of Lit Review. <laughs> and I mean, I just want to know, I mean, you probably know this already, but like, Lit Reviews are considered really hard and like people really don't like to do like, write Lit Reviews. So I think that you're turning that concept up I'm reclaiming it. on its head. I'm reclaiming it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's so funny. All right. Bye, y'all. Bye. <laughs> Hey y'all, hope you enjoyed the first segment of the Lit Review. I wanted to quickly remind y'all to like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash Radio Cachimbona, on Twitter at Radio Cachimbona, and on Instagram at Radio Cachimbona. If you want to support me putting out more content, then you can become a monthly Patreon subscriber. Or if you don't like the monthly subscriber model, then you can Venmo at Cachimbona underscore pod. And in that same vein, I wanted to thank the patrons who recently became patrons as part of the special patron offer featuring the Lit Review. So I wanted to shout out Joseph Falcon Freeman, Stephen Hernandez, Giovanni Esquerido Leal, Elisa Jimenez, Maria Cepeda, and Maria Ocampo. Y'all are helping me put out more content, and I love y'all for it. I also wanted to remind y'all that another way to support without money is to rate Radio Cachimbona on Apple Podcasts. It really helps with visibility and gaining more listeners. And I wanted to shout out my favorite review of the week, which was written by Valeria Noemi. She writes, I cannot thank Yvette enough for continually bringing up important issues that are often not brought to the table in immigration discourse. I appreciate her for bringing her experiences with this platform. I am empowered with all the knowledge I learned on her podcast. Thank you for allowing us to learn and grow with you, Yvette. Thank you, Valeria, that review made my day. And if y'all want to make my day, then please go leave a review sharing your thoughts on Apple Podcasts. Thanks, y'all. Bye.